In this conversational attempt to illuminate the positive idiosyncrasies of a cinematic reproduction of a televised comedic presentation, we endeavor to elucidate warm positive feelings towards a fictional entity long neglected by the oppressors of projected iconography in motion. That may be a mouthful, but it was written by someone from France. That said, we're about to do our best to prove to you that Coneheads is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, we have talked Saturday Night Live on this show before, but I'm not going to lie, this movie has been on my radar for a while. We are talking 1993's Coneheads, and here to help me out today, brand new to the show, we got Drew from the Across the Stars podcast and the Attitude Era Wrestling Review podcast. Drew, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, two things. Thanks for having me, and thanks for letting me watch this movie again. Now, I'm just taking a look here. Like, Across the Stars is a Star Wars-based podcast, and then you have the Attitude Era Wrestling Review. So, aside from the fact that the Coneheads themselves are, technically speaking, foreign objects, what is it about this movie that wanted to make you come onto the show and, and defend it? Well... I, you know, we, you asked me to be on the show and I just went to IMDb and just started looking at like movies that I just basically clicked on and started looking through the bottom 100 and I just started from the bottom going up. And the first one that I saw that really spoke to me was this one. I remember watching it as a kid all the time. Um, my dad had four movies that he would pretty much when he would watch a movie, this is what he would do. He would put it in, watch it from beginning to end. And to show my age, he would literally have to hit rewind, and he would usually watch it right back to back, the same movie. This was one of the four movies. So I've seen this quite a few times, and I hadn't seen it until we watched it last night, the night before last, one of the two. Um, I hadn't seen it in a few years because we have two daughters and who are 10 and 7, so if it doesn't involve a lamp jumping on the letter I, we don't really get to watch a whole lot of stuff other than that right now. <laughs> but we watched, they watched it with me. My family watched it with me. And I, I just love this movie. I had forgotten a lot of it. Not really forgotten, but just the little things that I didn't pick up on maybe when I was younger that I did now that I just love this movie. If I mentioned I love this movie? I, I'm starting to think you love this movie. I just love the fact that your process to get to this movie was very Drake-like in that you started from the bottom and now you're here. Um, <laughs> also, I'm just wondering, as a parent, how many times have you wanted to tell your kids to maintain low tones? Oh, I absolutely. that. I don't know if I've ever <laughs> said that that to them, but I will ask them, do they want to participate in the consumption of mass quantities a lot? And they will look at me like... <laughs> I am growing a cone head. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of want to get my kids to watch this film now because then they'd probably understand why I'm as weird as I am. But that's okay. That's okay. Uh, but before we dive into Coneheads, the Saturday, li Saturday Night Live translation from TV to, to film, it is time to take this 1993 comedy epic and trailerize it. A family living and working illegally in a country they never chose to be in 
on the run from ruthless immigration officials hell-bent on their own career ascension in a story surprisingly not produced by Fox. From the man behind the personification of Dr. Evil comes a movie from the mind responsible for thinking Blues Brothers 2000 was a good idea. Dan Aykroyd stars in Coneheads, a five-minute sketch stretched out 18 times longer than its original length, a script that requires its own Conehead to English dictionary. It's a movie that's better than the sum of its parts, but admitting that may make you want to maintain low tones. Coneheads, rated PG for Pretty Garthok. Uh, well, I was on mute. <laughs> I, was, I was I was laughing through a lot of that, especially the Fox News part. I I will admit that I think after watching this, uh, you know, in preparation for this, I I went to my kids and asked them if they wanted to nerf all the Garthok, and they just kind of looked at me very very strangely. Um, this is an infinitely quotable film. Probably for all the right and or wrong reasons, I'm not quite sure. But let's get to who is in this. This film stars Dan Aykroyd, Jane Curtin, Michael McKeon, David Spade, Chris Farley, Michelle Burke, with appearances from Michael Richards, Sinbad, Phil Hartman, Adam Sandler, Eddie Griffin, Jason Alexander, taking a breath here, Jan Hooks, Dave Thomas, Kevin Nealon, Parker Posey, Garrett Morris, Tim Meadows, Tom Arnold, John Lovitz, and it is the film debuts of Drew Carey, Ellen DeGeneres, and Joey Lauren Adams. That is a huge cast. Like, when you go back and watch this, especially in hindsight, are you surprised just how many people are involved in this? Oh, my very first note I wrote was an absolute all-star a-list cast and it was just blew my yeah even my mom's like she's like wow everybody's in this i don't think i've ever seen anyone say anything with sinbad as an a-list cast but but i'm willing to listen to this one here but coincidentally given how many people are in this there could have been more because according to imdb there were scenes filmed with colleen camp ellen cleghorn brian doyle murray and conan o'brien but those scenes were cut from the final film. I'm just curious what they were involved in. Like, like, what did they do? I now want to know. I'm now- I want to see the director's cut. Oh, my God. And all, like, every single deleted scene, I need to see that now. This film was directed by Steve Barron. This is his third film on his filmography. Previously, he directed Electric Dreams and the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, but this isn't, it's not just three films, right? There were a ton of music videos on here. And this is where I was really impressed with his, with his, you know, his filmography. Yes. Like taking a look at some of the, the music videos, notably at least. AHA's Take On Me is one of the most iconic music videos of all time. That's his work. That's his work. And then, you know, Gotta rep my Canadian here. He did the videos for Run To You and Summer of 69 and a number of others for Brian Adams. He also did Eddie Grant's Electric Avenue. 
Africa for Toto and Def Leppard's Let Get, Let's Get Rocked. Like, I know that occasionally directors make the jump from music videos to film, but that is a that is a award-winning series of music videos that he did. So he really comes in with with a breadth of knowledge. And and I think it actually showed in this. I mean, your thoughts on Steve Barron's or Steve Barron's directing. I said Steve Bannon, that was definitely wrong. But Steve Barron's directing. Oh, <laughs> I can see a cut of this movie done by Steve Bannon. <laughs> Given the immigration, uh, the storyline, kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I'm I'm kind of wondering, can you see my notes here? I cannot. I, I, I listed the music videos that I was like, oh my gosh, this guy did all of these. Then he did the, teenage, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which, insane. It was the highest grossing or it was the yeah the highest grossing independent film until Pulp Fiction, um, so just wow. Then he did this and kind of went back to music videos for a while, but <laughs> I don't I don't have a problem with this direction of this movie. I think the tone this movie is exactly what it is and never claims to be anything else. It is just in your face, fish out of water story, and. No, and doesn't claim to be anything else. I, w- I, w- I will say, just in researching for for you know other episodes, you know the show somewhere down the road, there is not a single Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie that does not qualify for this podcast. So somewhere down the road, we're going to be probably touching on that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, and I'm kind of here for it, so that's okay. This film was nominated, well, at least given a dishonorable mention at the 1993 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards for Worst Film. The worst film that year at the Stinkers was Sliver. Just, But it was also nominated for Worst Resurrection of a TV Show at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. It lost to the Beverly Hillbillies, of which, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with that one here. But that also <gasps> may. Oh, really? You mean the Jim Varney movie? Was he in the Beverly Hillbillies? Like, I, I think I've tried to like block that out of my memory. <laughs> Jim Varney, Diedrich Bader. I will do. I will come back and defend that movie. Oh, we're gonna go down that road, are we? Okay. Well, absolutely. <sighs> the next time we get a moment to, uh, we'll we'll go down that road. Uh, I was surprised at just at its box office performance. Like I recognize that not all Saturday night live films do well. I do appreciate that. But in 1993, when this film was released, the July 23rd weekend, it debuted only at number six, six, like the, the top grossing film debuting that weekend was poetic justice with Janet Jackson. Like, what? Over oh, Coneheads? Yeah. yeah, that's like way pre-nip slip Janet Jackson. I know, right? I mean, I get it. It's around the the time when Janet Jackson is putting out phenomenal albums. Like, I get it, right? Like, she is... In 1993, Janet Jackson is one of the hottest stars on the music scene. But just to, just to run down the top 10 here. So, you got Poetic Justice at number one. At $11.7 million. And keep in mind, this is 1993. So that's actually a good chunk of change. Number two was in the line of fire in its third week. Okay. The Firm at number three in its fourth week. 
Free Willy in its second week. And then, okay, kids movie, I get that. No problem, right? Jurassic Park in its seventh week at number five. And then Coneheads. And there's only almost, uh, I would say, almost $5 million difference between Coneheads at number six and Poetic Justice at number one. Also, by the way, debuting that weekend at number nine was another stakeout. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, <sighs> it wasn't that bad. Um, but I wanted, I, t- I took a look at this, okay? First things first. This film, as far as the rating goes, over on Metacritic is a Metascore of 49. And then at Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of only 37 and a tomatometer of 35. And given who's in this and how funny it actually is, does not necessarily the critic score. Because I appreciate that critics probably take a look at Saturday Night Live movies with a bit of a side eye and go, do I have to watch that? But the audience score, I think that's the one that surprises me. So what is it that people aren't getting about this? Your guess is as good as mine because I, as I was watching it, I put it on my social media things and everybody was ever, but nobody commented that they didn't like, because I asked, what's your opinion of this movie? Everybody's like, haven't seen it forever, but I remember it. Hilarious. Love that movie. Or they would just quote it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't. When I, because this is why I picked it. When I saw that, I'm like, I could understand that if it was, you know, upper 40s, lower 50s, I can get that. It is a, it is a stretched out Saturday Night Live sketch, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not, that's not a putting it down, but 39 and 34, that was just like, have these people, I'm, have they seen this movie? Right. It is hilarious but let's take a look at comparisons here rotten tomatoes put out a list of all the saturday night live movies ranked by tomatometer at number one was bob roberts with a 95 percent tomatometer and a 78 percent audience score of the 12 movies that were listed coneheads sits at seven Wayne's World sits at number two with a 79% critic score. Blues Brothers, 73. Wayne's World 2 at 60. And you know what? I, I don't disagree with those four. I mean, I could give or take Bob Roberts, but that's just personal preference. But I mean, obviously, Wayne's World to me might be the pinnacle of good Saturday Night Live films. But then it gets interesting after that. McGruber sits at a 47% critic score with a 35% audience score. So a lower audience score than Coneheads. Then at number six, you have Blues Brothers 2000, which I may be biased because that may have been the worst Super Bowl halftime show ever when they showed up. But Tomatometer 47%, audience score 37%. So the audience score is equal to Coneheads. Coneheads is infinitely more funny than Blues Brothers, Blues Brothers 2000. And if it's a Saturday Night Live film, I want it to be funny. Like, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on Blues Brothers 2000, just quickly, just, just to compare the two? I couldn't finish it. I made it about 25 minutes into it, and I realized that John Goodman wasn't Jim Belushi, or John, what, Jim or John? <laughs> John yeah, John Belushi. I get him confused. Um, and I went, no. This is why I couldn't just, 
I just kept asking myself, why is A, this a thing? B, why am I watching it? And I just couldn't. And I'll make, and if you put these two movies, Coneheads and Blues Brothers 2000, in front of a thousand people, 999 of them are going to pick Coneheads and the other one just died of a heart attack. <laughs> I mean, ju- just to put it into perspective, okay? Like if you're ranking this from audience score, okay, working from the bottom up, you know, Drake rules here. It's Pat has the not only the lowest to, you know tomatometer at 0%, but the lowest audience score at 29%, which I'm surprised it's at least a 29% for an audience score. I think it's 28 too high. <laughs> Probably about that, yeah. But Coneheads is tied for the third lowest audience score of any Saturday Night Live movie. Just below it, as far as critic score goes, Superstar sits with a 32% critic score, 59% audience score. Stewart Saves His Family has a 30 critic score, but a 52% audience score. The Ladies Man has an 11% tomatometer and a 42% audience score. I'm going to give Night at the Roxbury pass because I actually enjoyed that film. But even that, critic score 9%, audience score 69%. Coneheads is getting a bum rap over on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, straight up yeah. bum rap. Like, there yeah. is no way, no way that Stuart Saves His Family is better than Coneheads. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you like Stuart Saves His Family, but I'm calling it right now. Like, just... Seriously, but I le- didn't even know that was a movie. <clears throat> I'm I'm sorry. I have you know you know brought that that reality to you. Uh, it's not that good. Like it's the it's the opposite of the show. It's not that good. But let's get to the breakdown and figure out why this film deserves so much better. And we got to start with Dan Aykroyd, who of course plays Beldar Conehead. So, Drew, what are your thoughts on Dan Aykroyd in this? Just is he. Hmm, I don't want to put Beldar. Does Dan Aykroyd absolutely overact the crap out of this? You 115% bet he does. Is that the absolute perfect way to play this role? Perfect. He overacts it just so dry. It, if that makes any kind of sense, it does in my head, which means nobody else will understand it. So let me try to explain. He is... Like I said earlier, he is the fish out of water. He is the alien stuck on Earth. And this whole movie is 80, was 86 minutes runtime of just the Coneheads dealing with everyday human situations and making them humorous. And I think this movie, especially with Beldar, because he just, the, um, the, the lawnmower scene, so perfect, such a perfect example where he's, you know, he's technologically advanced, so he can fix these simple machines. But how does he fix it? By swishing a spark plug in his mouth. Absolutely gold humor. Just so subtle, not slapped in your face. I mean, this movie could have been a straight-up 80-minute slapstick movie, and it's really not. There's not a whole lot of physical comedy and slapstick humor in this this is all just them dealing with situations now is there some slapstick yes i mean of course it's a saturday night live skit stretched out so there's going to be some physical humor but especially with beldar it's mostly just 
dry the like you said in the trailer the you need a dictionary sometimes to understand what he says because they don't speak normal english they're from france so there's some translation error there but dan Aykroyd, i think he did does a superb job of what he was supposed to do i think you you nailed it on a lot of different heads here um First things first. Yep. Yes. A lot of different cone heads. <clears throat> exactly. Right. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like playing the ring game. You know, just try to toss it onto the cone. Um, but first things first, you're right. He is a father. Right. And regardless of whether he's trying to take over the earth or whether he's just trying to get off the planet, at the heart of it, he's a dad. And it makes Beldar that much more relatable. But, and yes, he overacts the crap out of it, but it is perfect because guess what? He's an alien. He's an oddball alien. He's a fish out of water. That's what you want out of this kind of movie. But I think as far as the language of the Coneheads and everything, all that, this has two really good aspects of world building. The first is to create its own language. And they'll just come up with words that you know exactly what they're talking about, but they're words that would make sense to to the Coneheads. But you don't really have to, you know, for lack of a better term, you don't have to subtitle it. You know, you don't need a dictionary. You understand what they're talking about, even though the word is something you've never heard before. That's just smart world building. But to the same token as well, they have all these different abilities, whether it's, you know, fixing a spark plug by swishing it around and clearly his mouth acid, uh, whatever it is they do with their cones in order to be able to basically it's the sonic screwdriver built into the head kind of thing. Um, but they don't elaborate as to everything that the cone heads that, you know, can do, but that's okay. Show me, don't tell me, right? Don't, don't be didactic and don't, don't treat us like we're idiots. Talk to us like they would talk to each other, show us what they can do, but don't have, don't feel you need to elaborate on why they can do that. I don't care. It's funny as hell. They're aliens. It's a comedy movie. I'm cool with that. And the fact that, you know, Dan Aykroyd is one of the co-writers on this and two of the other co-writers that went on to do Third Rock from the Sun. um, It's brilliant world building, right? And the fact that you're more often than not, the things that you are quoting from this film are things that are in Conehead language, like, you know, Garfield the Narthok, Narfield the Garthok. I always get those two mixed up. Narfel the Garthok or what or Mabs. Those are the things you're gonna quote, and that's perfect world building. Like kudos to him, not just as a, as an actor, but as a writer. Like it works. Now, that being said, in doing my research and going through IMDB and you see all these stories of how he was on set, I'm not even gonna address that. We are here specifically to talk about his performance in this film. Not going to get into the stuff that we were never behind the scenes for because we don't know. Um, but moving on to Jane Curtin as Primat Conehead. How was Jane for you? Because obviously she wasn't the original wife to Beldar. Of course, that was uh, Lorraine. And I can't remember her last name, but she was actually in this film. But Jane Curtin as Primat for you. Jane Curtin to me is one of the most underrated comedic actors in American history for two reasons, three, three reasons in three roles. This one, third rock from the sun is Dr. Mary Albright, which is just absolute perfection on nailing a role. And three, her and some of her Saturday night live skits are just 
great. This woman, it's because I think it's basically not basically. It is mostly just how she looks. She does not look like she would be an amazing, emoting physical comedy actor, but she nails it in all three of these roles. And the one scene in this one where I think she just they threw her up a softball. Well, they threw her a fastball and she said, you know what? I'm knocking this out of the park. It could have been the stupidest scene in the movie that could have took me right out of the movie, but it didn't. And I think a lot of her facials, her voice, her screaming just nailed this scene. And that's the birth scene in this movie. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about <laughs> where it's just, seven miles of chaos everybody running around and i know sinbad sometimes gets a bad rap but him with the video camera it it popped me and made me laugh out loud or the spot where her water breaks just look at her face oh my gosh it is just absolute perfection and she's She's, uh, I don't want to put it, she's dry like Dan Aykroyd, but in a different way throughout this because he's more, even when they first get there, he's more, well, we got to find a way to get off here. We're going to still take over the planet. And she kind of kind of quickly realizes we're going to be here seven zeros. So that's a long time. We need to adapt. And she kind of settles into that suburban housewife a little easier than Beldard or Dan Aykroyd's Beldar does. And I think the way she does it, the way she tries to adapt is kind of, it's stereotypical with the cosmopolitan magazines and the going shopping. We see her at the grocery store a couple of times. And then there's the part where she gets jealous of Jan Hooks's character. And I, I love, I love third rock from the sun. It's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. So the fact that, Jane Curtin, Jan Hooks are both in this, just makes me happy. But she is so good in this role. I I love it. I love everything she, I've ever seen her in. Talking about Jane Curtin again. Yeah, I love I love her in this. It, it's funny. You you mentioned some very good comedic scenes in this, but the one that really sold it for me was after Connie was upset after, you know, Beldar, you know, ripped the the hood off of Ronnie's car. And then she goes upstairs to to sit down and talk with Connie, you know, little, you know, heart to heart or a, or a cone to cone, if you will. Um, it's, it's a very touching scene, but at no point does she ever really drop the assertity of the character. She's still primate conehead. She's still a fish out of water. She's still awkward and and talking in her own dialect but there's still the heart there of a mom and it's it's funny because as i'm watching this you're almost prone to drawing parallels you know between you know with beldar and when primat comparing them to homer and marge simpson whereas beldar is a bit of a goof bit out there but he does what he does and that that's the way he's going to be you know right or wrong Primat and Marge, both of them, very caring moms, very, you know, down to earth. You know, when you say that about an alien, it's okay. But it's, you know, there there's still a lot of heart in there. Like, truly the heart and soul of the family lives in Primat. And even though she, you know, she is trying to get back, 
you know, to their planet. She's trying to get off Earth. You know, her priority is still her family. And it shows in that scene. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And of course, she's also the mom to Connie, as played by Michelle Burke. This one was a surprise for me because I was not familiar with with Michelle Burke's work really at all. I mean, aside the fact that in 1993 she was also in Dazed and Confused, um, you know, so that's a good year for her. But how was Michelle Burke for you? Well, a little spoiler. Well, not spoiler alert because it's, I don't, that was a really weird way to say that. Um, a little behind the curtain, I guess I could say. Kind of use something for my podcast. Behind, um, behind the Jane curtain? <laughs> no, not behind <laughs> Jane curtain. No. Um, Michelle, uh, Connie Conehead, I'm not going to lie. When I was a little younger and watching this movie, may have had a little crush on Connie Conehead a little bit. Not, I mean, I know she had a Conehead, but I was going with more of the face. She thought she was cute. But anywho, um. I kind of thought she got the teenage role a little, little, pretty good. Um, side note: I don't know if you were going to mention this or not, so I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there because I saw this and thought it was absolutely the cutest thing ever that Dan Aykroyd brought his daughter at the time to set, who loved the conehead thing, wanted her own costume, so they ended up casting her as three-year-old Connie Conehead. That was that was just cute. And, and, go, and and that just goes to show, you know, how much of a, uh, you know, a passion project this was for Dan Aykroyd. It, it's really nice to see those stories. Um, but yeah, I, I think with, with Michelle Burke as playing, you know, teenage Connie, um, I, it's funny because she's, she's actually really, really good in this. 
to the point of I'm surprised she didn't, you know, blow up after this. Um, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this could have been a very whiny role. It really could have. And it could have been Luke Skywalker. Um, it, it, it could have been Marissa Tomei out of Oscar, right? Like that kind of tonality. Mm. And as much as, and don't get me wrong, like we, we just talked about Oscar on the show. Love that movie. Uh, but her voice, you know, was giving me Fran Drescher vibes. I'm not going to lie. But Michelle Burke made a very likable teenager to the point where it's like, sometimes you see the teenagers like, I don't want to be my parents. I don't want to do what you do. No, that's annoying. Michelle Burke hit the perfect level of sweetness. Understand, like she's still a conehead. She understands their language. You know, it's not like she's not them, but she's also very Earth as well. Yeah, she realizes I'm different, and there's just nothing I can do about that. So I'm going to fit in as best I can, and still have this whole teenage angst thing going on kind of you know the standard she's showing to me she's the epitome of even though they're from remulac they are still human i mean everybody is human to enter core i got kind of a weird way to say that but human values go throughout the galaxy like she still loves her family she still understands but you know she's that typical teenager and that's going to happen anywhere even in this environment growing up with dad who wants to still take over the planet until you know spoiler alert the very end and you know mom who's just i guess second in command trying to fit in too and she just yeah like you said she nails this role perfectly she's you know happy go lucky but still has that you know standard teenage problem with oh my dad thinks my boyfriend's a flare and dip which I even wrote is I will call every boyfriend my daughters have a flare and dip. <laughs> it's just a thing that's going to happen. Um, but yeah, she nails the part. And I, cause after the movie I Googled, cause I realized, you know, I remember her, like I didn't know her name until, cause I never looked at names back then, you know, unless it was somebody really famous. It was in a lot of things. But then I got to thinking, like you said, I never, I didn't remember seeing her in anything. And I looked it up and, you know, she never really did hit it big. And that, after this role, like you said, really surprises me. I, th- I think there, there's also an understated part to, to Connie here. And I think this, again, goes to the script of the story as well. Is that they could have played on the trope that, yeah, she's a conehead, she's in high school, and let's be honest, high school sucks for a lot of people, right? If you ever Mm -hmm. want to talk about being ostracized for the littlest things, high school is where you want to go, but at no point is, you know, the fact that she has a conehead ever really talked about, it's never made fun of, it's not, it's, it's not a... A trope to give conflict to Connie. It's just accepted by everybody. And I think there's something really, really positive about that. Like, yes, yes, they are. They are an illegal alien family, literally in the United States. But yet here she is getting along with everyone. No one's making, you know, no one's pointing out the cone. No one's making, you know, pointy head jokes or whatever the case may be. No one's tossing hula hoops at her head to see if they can score a few points. 
it's just the way she is and it's never a conflict for her and that's refreshing from a story standpoint well i can explain that away actually i mean i know everything you just said sounds really really great but the reason that the way that is is because us americans care so little about europe that when we just heard she was french we just assumed that's what french people look like i mean maybe it's my canadian sensibilities right maybe it's it's the you know it's the canuck in me that just that just actually really appreciates the fact that everyone gets along i'm not quite sure but you know but it's when we we gotta talk about the story i'm just making fun of americans here even though i am one oh it's okay we canadians make fun of ourselves as a hobby it's just it's a sport for us here um moving on though because we're going to talk about the story a little bit later here but moving on to gorman seedling is played by michael mckean who i freaking love but you know mainly because of spinal tap but how is michael mckean for you michael mckean is an absolute treasure to the human race and should be there should be statues on corners of just comedic and musical genius like my seven-year-old daughter loves the song blood on the coal by the the um folksman <laughs> like it is on my playlist in the car she knows all of the words to say i love michael mckean is an understatement i i love everything i've ever seen him in you mentioned spinal tap i love um I just, well, I mentioned, since I mentioned it, um, A Mighty Wind, uh, I love the mockumentaries he's in. He's just absolute hilarious. And the, the scene in this that gets me, it's probably pretty obvious. Well, not really obvious, but the part where he starts playing the, um, where him and David Spade are Jehovah's Witnesses and go in there and just start grilling them. And he just suddenly breaks into French. And I'm like, it's, it doesn't, ah, it's just, they could have made that so slapsticky and stupid, but it was all, it was real until the only slapsticky part to me is really where David Spade just kicks him in the shin. <laughs> but he plays that just, that, what is an NI or whatever agency, um, immigration or whatever, so well. And he doesn't play it completely as a straight, as the straight man, because he's wanting to hook shock collars to people crossing the border, which I love now that I'm older and can realize that is an absolute piece of foreshadowing that he will end up having a collar that shocks the crap out of him later in the movie. Love that. But yes, he, he's just another just absolute comedic and musical genius. And him and him and Dan Aykroyd both really kind of in that that affair. I I will say, given that this is a Saturday Night Live movie, um, Gorman Seedling seems to be the kind of role that you would expect a Phil Hartman to be in. And of course, you know Hartman is actually in the film, but I'm actually happier that it's Michael McKean because I think with with you know with Phil Hartman. He would have done good, but I don't, it would have been, I think, a bit more played for comedic sense. Michael McKean yeah. added, added a little bit of menace to Gorman Seedling. Not not like a scary menace kind of thing, but but a more comedic menace to him. Like, yes, you needed someone who you could 
you know, reasonably think or expect to, you know, have the idea of shock collaring people trying to cross the border, right? Like this, he's not a good person. And as much as he's played for subtle laughs here, you don't want him to be over the top subtle laughs kind of thing. And I think too, um, I, I recognize the, the show was done later on, um, you know, Phil Hartman in news radio would have been a good, you know, a good template for this, even though it's kind of done in reverse, but, but Michael McKean just absolutely nailed it. And as much as I love Phil Hartman, Michael McKean, I think is the better choice for this. Totally agree. I, I think in this movie, McKean, he isn't, I mean, he's the, he's the antagonist. I mean, obviously throughout this movie, the, like they faced antagonist, not just the, we have to figure out problems, the overall thing, but in this, I don't think he's so much playing it as he's evil. Is just he wants to further his career, and he, he will step on anybody and deport anyone with any idea he can think of to get to that. These people are just a means to an end. If that makes as much sense as my head. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say too, like if you would put Phil Hartman in that role. Uh, it would have been. It would have felt like he was trying to top David Spade because I could, I could see how the, that would might be a touch much. Michael McKean plays a perfect counterpoint to David Spade, and with David Spade in the role of Eli, Eli Turnbull, tell me that role isn't tailor made for him. Oh, um, one of my notes is that David Spade should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. This <laughs> is just he. Out of all the acting in this movie. He's one. He's a one-note character, absolutely. But that note is hit so perfectly; it just rings throughout the auditorium. He's yeah. He is just that ass-kissing yes man who will you know. He doesn't have any ideas of his own. He doesn't have ambitions other than he's going to ride your coattails as far as he can, <laughs> and it gets him all the way to the throne. The left side of the throne of Remulac. <laughs> and well, 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 you've just read all of my notes here, so so clearly everything that I was about to say with David Spade is completely covered. But uh, but you nail it, right? Like it could have been, you know, annoying because it is. He's a one note character. It's a, it's one running gag. But but with David Spade in that role, it feels natural, right? It's it's not. It doesn't feel overdone. It, yeah. It, now this is the one. You were talking about seedling. I could almost see Phil Hartman being in that role, if except he's just. I think Spade, his stature of being smaller than Michael McKean helps it out too. So I don't know if Hartman would have been because he'd have kind of been, you know, size wise the same. And if you notice when they shoot seedling and Spade together, it's almost always from up to down, so it makes him look even smaller. I noticed that yesterday. Oh, it's it's very smart the way they the way they pair the two of them together. Like you're right, Phil Hartman in either of those roles would have upset the balance of power of the relationship between Michael McKean and David Spade. Um, I, I think they they worked well together. Now we got to talk about Ronnie here. I'm I'm gonna oh. I'm gonna let you take the lead on Chris Farley here as Ronnie. But what were your thoughts? Well, I had well because me and my wife were asking this question and i so i want to know one thing that i don't i never heard i never picked up on and i didn't think of when i was younger but with two daughters i thought of it yesterday is he a 
slacker high school student with that's drinking on the job or is he a mid-20s slacker dating a seven, 16-year-old? I, I, I can't even answer that question. Like his his place in the universe of of the, of this world, it's not really defined that well. I mean, I have a feeling he's a senior at the high school who just happens to have a job at the, uh, you know, and he's also an underage drinker if that's the case. Because otherwise, how did he get into the school for the swim meet and all that kind of stuff? That, that's the okay, only so, way I can think of it. So typical American senior. Okay, so, okay, I'm okay with this world then. If we can <laughs> go with that. I'm okay with it. If he's mid twenties dating or early twenties dating a sixteen year old, red flag just went off and he's a flare and dip. But yeah, Farley plays this as I look at this as the prototype for Tommy Boy. This is Tommy Boy without the money. This is Tommy Boy from Wish, if you want to say it that way. It's just the party, the partier with a big heart. And it's a role that Farley played a lot. It's a role that Farley played well. And I've loved almost everything I've seen Chris Farley in. Saturday Night Live skits. I'm sorry, if you don't like the motivational speaker skits, you grab your wrist because you're not going to feel a pulse. (laughs) I... I teach band camp in the summer and I introduced them to that skit one time during a break and let them watch it on YouTube. And for the rest of the week, all I had to do is say the phrase, you're going to live in a van. And they would yell back at me in unison down by the river. (laughs) Chris Farley is an absolute If we're going with Mount Rushmore of 90s comedy, he's going to be the biggest face on there, probably. At least maybe one, two with take your pick. But he was just perfect in everything. This role, again, every character in this, there is no like multidimensional great characters. Everybody is what they are. And they don't need to be anything else. That's just the type of movie it is. And not everything has to be Shawshank Redemption. Sorry, it just doesn't. He is the drinking high school senior, if we're going with that route, who has a crush on the Conehead girl. And, you know, God bless him because he's looking right there at Joey Lauren Adams, who I had a crush on through college, like nobody's business. And he's looking at her and going, you know what? I'll take, I'll take pointy top. So... Good for him. He can see inner beauty before he even knew what she sounded like. But anywho, so, yeah, I like Chris Farley. I think he did a pretty good job with, he wasn't in this movie a whole lot, but when he got the spotlight, like when he yells out of the car at the end, or I think he yells, I love you too, whatever. It's just, that's, that's good acting by Chris Farley there. That's a simple line, a simple thing to do, but he he sold it to me, and I love it. And Chris Farley could do that. I think, I don't, I'm trying to think, did he ever do any kind of serious role? I don't think he ever did. Off the top of my head, I don't think he did. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to say something. Real- I think he could have. It possibly. Possibly. But I'm, I'm going to say something real controversial here. I'm not a big Chris Farley fan. All right. Well, folks, it's been nice talking to you. I'll talk to you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm not going to lie here, right? Like he would not be on my Mount Rushmore of comedy, um, because every role he played, and yes, the Saturday Night Live sketch, the whole van down by the river, yes, absolutely, that is that is Saturday Saturday Night Live gold. But I think what made Chris Farley really good on Saturday Night Live was that it was in small doses, and I think in this film he is moderately used very well you know um the part where he's screaming out of the car you know like yes i love you kind of thing i think that makes sense that that's where farley does shine um and the awkwardness of when he's you know getting his picture taken before the prom that that works that's endearing but it's the part where he's talking with beldar at the um you know at the car at the, the the garage and all that um I don't know. It's just something about it that's very, you know, I often joke around that Gary Sinise, every role he plays is Gary Sinise. Chris Farley, every role he plays is Chris Farley. And if you like Chris Farley, you are getting exactly what you love out of him. And I and I give you that entirely. But if you're not the biggest Chris Farley fan, you sit there and go, okay, well, it's Chris Farley being Chris Farley. And there, like I said, there are times where his awkwardness around the Coneheads is quite endearing. And I wish I saw more of that, but I mean, it's, I mean, that's just me. Yeah. I'm, I'm now going to get like hate mail on Twitter, you know, like everybody else on Twitter. Um, but, but this film has a ton of smaller roles. So rather than break down every single person, because we'd be here till the cows come home, um, I'm going to do a little rapid fire here. All right. So I'm going to give you the actor. You tell me just quickly your thoughts on them. We've got to start with Sinbad. Not terrible in this movie um could be worse it could be lots of sinbad i think he played his part okay as the i don't want to put it urban business owner and i love the part where he tells the three tips to beldar and he takes them all to heart look nice be your own boss cash only and beldar has a driving school that he owns he wears nice clothes Cash only. I love that. It's a simple little line that Sinbad says, and they don't even, it has a, such a subtle payoff that you really have to look for it. And I didn't, I've never noticed it until yesterday and I love it, <laughs> but Sinbad wasn't bad. I forgot he could be really likable on camera. And, and I think it was the perfect role for him. I, I will give him that. Uh, the neighbor, Jason Alexander. Um. <laughs> Kind of annoying, honestly, in this one, pushing the hair. I mean, yes, it's a it's a gag, and because we all know him as bald Jason Alexander. So, eh, out of all the little tiny roles, probably the least my favorite. <laughs> okay, uh, Phil Hartman is Marlax. Perfect. Phil Hartman never had a bad role. I'm sorry, he just didn't. Phil Hartman, everything he did, he knocked it out of the park. He was a comedic genius. That voice just perfect mm. i i do I, I miss a good phil hartman he, he really was awesome uh adam sandler 
Adam Sandler. I'm trying to remember who he was again. He he was so the that, guy who sold the uh, the Ronnie DeChico uh, identity. Oh, that's right. He was the yeah the sleaze bag. Um, I could have. I'd rather have seen somebody else. It was nah. I'm not a I'm not a big Adam Sandler fan. Like he can be funny. He's every movie of his except for that last like drama he did is basically turn your brain off and have a good time. But this, this role just wasn't, I don't want to sound, well, there's no other way for me to say this. I would have rather have seen like some fake sleazy Russian dude in that role other than just fake Italian Adam Sandler. I was about to say, you know, turn your brain off and have a good time. Clearly, you have never seen Punch Drunk Love. No one had a good time with Punch Drunk Love. Um, I, I will say, though, for Adam Sandler, this this role is a bit more, much more restrained than I give Sandler credit for normally. So, uh, you know, almost the perfect amount of Sandler. One scene, all you need. Yeah. Michael Richards as the motel clerk. I like it because... To me, it's the exact it's Stanley Kapowski, if you if you know that role in that movie, um, from UHF, it's almost the exact same role of just duh uh buh, stuttering lovable moron. And I think he does it so he does it perfectly. Uh I'm not a big Seinfeld fan, but I know he he wasn't that on Seinfeld, but have you ever seen the movie UHF? Oh God, I, I love UHF. I absolutely yeah. love UHF. So yes, absolutely. So yeah, so I was getting big Stanley vibes from that role, and I'm like, I'm there for it. I love it. I just if he'd had a mop, I would have lost my mind. All we need now is the motel clerk drinking from the fire hose. Um, okay, moving on to Jan <laughs> Hooks, who was the driving student who was hitting on Beldar. Perfect. Jan Hooks was amazing and everything. Uh, again, like I said, I'm a Third Rock from the Sun fan. Love that show. I've seen it all the way through multiple times. And she is hilarious on that. She's hilarious. perfect in this one. Well, I wouldn't say perfect. She has a, such a very small role. I would have rather have seen her with a little more, a little a bigger role. Okay, we were talking to David Spade earlier, and I said maybe Phil Hartman. I can almost see Jan Hooks pulling that role off as the female assistant. See, I was thinking Jan Hooks would have made a better wife for Jason Alexander. Well, yeah, because whoever that was was terrible. <laughs> I can't. I don't remember who that was. I I just blocked it out because that whiny voice just got on my nerves after like the first two words she said. <laughs> okay, the high master himself, Dave Thomas. Ah, uh, Dave Thomas from Second City. Great. Dave Thomas was great. Again, he's he's one of those one-note kind of comedy people because of his voice, but could pull it off in just so many different roles. It was it was great. I loved it, especially when he starts at the end talking, ah, oh, nobody understands me. They never do. They never <laughs> do. With David Spade, just just perfect. Perfect casting, if you ask me. Because I am Canadian, I am contractually obligated to say that anything Dave Thomas does uh, is gold. Because, of course, Bob and Doug McKenzie are our national icons. So, uh, but he was. He was fun in this. Um, the Dentist, as played by John Lovitz. Um, 
a hundred percent just for the sneer of, at looking at, at the teeth while trying to figure out what the hell to do with them. But John Lovitz for you. I love that. He's another one that I love. I think that a lot of this movie, the reason I like it, because the casting was so phenomenal. Every, all these funny people, just in these little bit parts, just adds up and starts adding up and adding up. And yeah, like you mentioned, when Beldar opens the open wide, wider, and he just goes full on like great white shark, multiple rows of teeth, and he just slowly starts to figure out how to put the mask in. So he just shoves it in his mouth sideways. Just so subtle, so classy. He could have, again, another part that they could have played slapsticky and crazy, but they didn't. It was subtle. It was nice. It was it was great. Uh, the golf course companion there for Beldar, as played by Tom Arnold. Absolutely terrible. I Tom Arnold, why was he ever allowed to be on camera? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, even even in this role when he's just a a-hole, and that's all he's supposed to be, which he is in real life. He even screwed that up. He's like the worst <laughs> part of this movie to me. Given that John Lovitz, of course, is a dentist, which means he's got money, I wouldn't have minded to see him there. Uh, but it was a very, 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 very small part. Um, I'm not going to mention Parker Posey and Joey Laurie and Adams because I don't even think they actually had lines in this, uh, at least not too many that were intelligible unless they were singing along with uh, uh, the song in the car. Uh, Kevin Nealon, very, very small part in this, but... again. Just absolutely hilarious, best actor ever. Kevin Nealon is great, giving money. Um, I love Kevin Nealon. I can't do what he does like that, but I tried. <laughs> His double speak bit, but yeah, I love Kevin Nealon. He's he's great. Julius Sweeney is the principal of Connie's school. Oh, perfect because of the whiny, overacted voice. Because I think everybody has had that teacher or principal at one point in your life. And it just makes it so relatable. And the part where she tells um, Prime at that you know that, that they don't need any help for the um, Christmas light display after the um, fireworks burned everybody's retinas off. Just really another something subtle that just made me laugh a lot. <laughs> because if you notice in that scene when she says that, she takes her sunglasses off and still has the sunburn that everybody got from that <laughs> that's something i don't think i ever picked up on when i was younger watching this and my wife picked up on it yesterday she's like everybody immediately got sunburned i said you're right and then when she pulled off the sunglasses in the store and you could see, like that's just great subtle writing but, but yeah i like her in this in that role and finally as the swimming coach for connie ellen degeneres random i guess we could say i mean this is 93 ellen does she have her tv show yet i'm trying to think well it was it was her film debut it was her film debut she had a tv show ellen it was a sitcom i have, I have a feeling that came after this i think it did um just random i guess would say just i don't know i don't remember her ever being in a movie except for this one okay um i i have to put this out there one of the things that, that really hit me as I was watching this again, and this a, a lot of this credit's got to go to Steve Barron and his cinematography team, is that this film 
is surprisingly well shot with a lot of smart camera movements to it. So, you know, when, when you're watching it, at, you know, when we're much younger, uh, you know, in 1993, and for the record, that makes this film almost 30 years old. It's 30 years old in a couple of months. So, hoy. but looking back at it, you know, do you appreciate the camera work and the direction of the film more? Yes. I mean, I mentioned earlier, like they always shooting kind of down on McKean and Spade. So it makes them look even smaller to the, to the, um, not showing. Well, how, what am I, how, how I want to put that, but uh, overall, yes, I do. And you were talking about this movie being 30 years old and it's not really a dated movie. Honestly, there's a, a few things that date this movie. And this is a movie that you could you could put at any time, and it just could be there. I mean, the cars kind of date it. The music, which is great music, by the way, we haven't talked about the music in this movie yet, and it's wonderful. The score and the soundtrack. Um, what else did I say could date it? There was a couple things I thought of. Now I forgot what it was. But anyway, there's not a whole lot of like the clothing. The clothing can date it, but that's even coming back in style. This is a just a timeless story, really, to your other point. Cinematography, yeah, this is beautifully shot. Mostly, mostly it's a bright, happy movie, and I think that was a very good direction because if it was shot as a kind of a darker movie, it's going to come across as, okay, they're still trying to come across and destroy the planet. But now the beginning scenes, I know it's at night, but even the early, you know, where we got to contact Remulac are still a little darker inside the store, inside their first little trailer. But until they get to the cul-de-sac, it's that's when it starts to really lighten up and everything gets bright. Everything gets happy. And then, you know, so when they go back to Remulac, everything starts getting darker, more darker tones, less light, less happy. And then when we get to the end, we get to the prom, even though it's at night, everything's still bright. Everything's happy. Everything comes out good in the end. <laughs> so yeah, I like I like the cinematography in this one. I mean, maybe it's just me being a bit of a film geek, but I mean, their their use of like you know uh, shallow depth of field, you know lenses and the like, and of course speeding up a lot of the footage in order to make it seem like uh, Beldar is doing things at conehead lightning speed. There's just a lot of smart direction in this, and you go back and you take a look at it, especially if you're looking for those kind of things, and even like the camera move, like when Beldar gets his money and he's about to go for lunch, kind of thing. Um, you know when he's working at uh, at Sinbad's shop, and there's you know there's this little low angle camera where he does a quick little fast walk from the back of the shop into their little trailer and the camera, you know, pans and basically frames him in that, that, that little, you know, distorted, you know, glass bottom kind of thing. It's really smartly plotted out and, and shot blocked. And, you know, I recognize we're talking about a Saturday Night Live film, but I have to give kudos to the smartness of the camera blocking on this. It is a well shot, and that probably goes to you know Steve Barron being a music video director and really shooting a lot of things for style rather than substance. But he gets he gets the best of both worlds in this. Okay, so with everything that we have talked about uh, with this film, it comes time where you have to narrow it down to one. It's kind of like Highlander. There can only be one. So, Drew, 
Who is your MVP of Coneheads? My MVP of Coneheads. I mean, the obvious choice I think would probably be Dan Aykroyd. But I'm going to go with just the subtlety of, like I said, she's one of my favorite people on the planet. I'm going to have to go with Jane Curtin. I think, I think she nails it. I, she's just so funny. The vacuum scene is hilarious. The the toilet paper, the whole part of her being just the housewife that does does it so abnormally. It's funny. Is to me more. Kind of more telling than Beldar trying to fit in at a golf club or getting hit on by one of his driving students. And I, like I said before, Jane Curtin's one of my favorite people on the planet. So, and that and the fact that they saw her in this role and said, you know what? Let's reverse it and throw her in a TV series where somebody else is doing that off of her and see how it works. And it worked. So, I think I think for me it's Jane Curtin. I really wanted to give this to Michael McKean because I freaking love him. I really do. And this role, he just kind of eats up every single scene that he's in. But I really can't ignore just how much Dan Aykroyd put into this. Like, aside of the fact that you know, you know, you know, creation of the characters, aside of the fact that you know he's the writer, he is you know really the engine that drives this. He is surrounded by a phenomenal cast, Jane Curtin, Michelle Burke, Michael McKean. Like, they all complement, but it all comes down to Baldar Conehead for me. Because he's so absurd, because he's so out there, because it is well-directed, and because you actually empathize with this, you know, not-from-France alien, uh, and you accept everything that he does, but still see him as a father, Still see him as, you know, coping with the same things that we all cope with down here on Earth. Dan Aykroyd, you know, not, not just made this, but he made this film. Uh, so for, for me, he is the MVP. Drew, thank you so much for this. I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about Across the Stars and the Attitude Era Wrestling Podcast? All right. Well, the Attitude Era Wrestling Review podcast is little my first love, my first podcast with me and my co-host Arnold, where we go back 25 years-ish to the WWF and WCW, and we watch the Monday night shows, Raw and Nitro. We are currently at time of recording in September of 1997. We watch it every, all the weekly shows, all the pay-per-views. We watch them, we review them, we tell you about them. We hope you listen along. If not, listen to us and we can help you remember what you watched as a kid or an adult when you were, it depends on your age, 25 years ago. That's my first podcast, um, which you're going to be a guest on, by the way. I, I am right. looking forward to that because it's been a while since I watched wrestling, but I am looking forward to getting back into that one. That's going to be a fun one. Yep, and then I also have with my friend Brandon across the stars is a chronologic journey through the Star Wars universe where we have been going through everything Star Wars and not in release order, which we totally want you to watch it in release order first because everybody should watch it, you know, the way it was intended. But we're going back through it chronologically for, you know, probably our umpteenth viewing, but whatever, let's call it second. And going through it, you know, in timeline order to see just, you know, how things stack up, how we got to where we were, 
you know, without the um, four, five, six, one, two, three, and I refuse to acknowledge that seven, eight, nine exist, but not really, but we're going to review them eventually. <laughs> but, but yeah, so we do that. We, we, again, we watch, we did episode one, we did episode two. We're right now, we're in the watching the Clone Wars series, which is crazily out of order because it's an anthology and not a series. So you never know what season and what episode we'll be reviewing next week. Our first two episodes at time of recording are up on your various podcasting platforms, except Apple and Google are being difficult, but you know, they always are, but yeah. So we go through and we watch star Wars and we review it and tell you about it and hope you interact and talk with us about it. See, I, I fear for you guys because, you know, you're going through it chronologically. You're going to get to a point and then Star Wars is going to come out and say, oh, by the way, we're doing the High Republic. Everything that happened before episode one, you're going to be like, damn it. Damn it. We have already, to go back. <laughs> already happened because a little behind the curtain here on that one, we recorded like the first, I I totally forgot about Tales of the Jedi coming out or I would have waited to start the podcast. So we recorded like the first four or five episodes then Tales of the Jedi comes out and i'm like crap this is a lot of stuff before we even started we need to do so i found some sci-fi nerds and we put together a round table and actually recorded it like as our seventh or eighth recording session but it came out as episode two our second release so it kind of there's kind of some inside like hey this is our second episode <laughs> but yeah so that's already happened and i know Disney's going to throw some more curveballs and probably be like, oh, season four of The Mandalorian takes place 30 years ago. Her, her, her. I'm like, but you never. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know it won't. It, it, it won't. But, you know, of course, we've got the Ahsoka series coming up and uh, oh, there, there is so much more Star Wars coming out. By the way, you, you make fun of seven, eight, nine. But, you know, if Disney has given us anything great, Rogue One is arguably one of the best Star Wars movies of all time. I will die on that hill. Um, I will die right next to you because it is my number two movie of the Star Wars, all Star Wars. Oh, it's it so good. So and it's good. probably like 1A, 1B with episode five. Yeah. Empire, Rogue One, that, that's that's the pinnacle right there. That's that's the Star Wars mountain. Uh, but Drew, thank you so much for this. And yes, somewhere down the road, we're going to have to talk about the Beverly Hillbillies. I, I, I can just tell right now. Uh, thank you so much for this open invitation anytime. And to you, our, our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you guys know the drill. If you think there is a movie out there that is unfairly maligned or you think is so bad that there's no way in here hell that we can find anything good to say about it hit us up on twitter at not that Badcast. we're also on facebook at facebook.com slash not that Badcast. make sure you like and follow so you can keep up on everything that we're doing let us know what the movie is we'll watch it we'll dissect it and we will find the good things to say because we are looking for those a grades in b movies again drew thank you so much for this
This is It's Not That Bad. Until next time, everyone, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.